We're continuing our study in Acts 9. Acts 9, it's hard to believe this is the fourth study already in the life of Saul or Paul. And today, the title is simply, Saul Proclaims Jesus. And I have been encouraged and rebuked as I've been looking at this study that of Paul's emphasis, even in the book of Acts, on the person of Christ, as we noted last week in verses 1 through 19, or through 19a, interesting uh, verse division, how they did this. But we'll pick it up at verse 19 of Acts chapter 9, reading through 31. And Paul, or Saul, he took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who was in Jerusalem, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews But they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase." What an amazing story and the continuing story of Saul, who was one of the most violent persecutors of the church, yet Jesus came and saved him. And we looked last week at the wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching to such a man as Saul of Tarsus. And that's where the story picks up. He hadn't eaten for three days and he had been baptized, but then he took this food and was strengthened. And then 19b, now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So he made it to his destination, but not in the way that he planned. Imagine, again, the 
comparison with verse 1. Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then just in a few days, we find him joining with the disciples of Damascus. I think we have to pause and, and consider the profound nature of his conversion that he was going to destroy the church. Now he is one of the disciples of the church. He was just baptized and getting back to strength, and we find him joining in with some fellowship with other disciples. It's a beautiful picture that as soon as he was saved, what did he do? He joined in with the disciples. And maybe you can think about your own story, or even today as we consider the first lesson, Christ is the magnetic force between his disciples. Christ is the, that magnetic force between or among his disciples. And if you're like me, when you were saved, you were amazed that God would save you, that you met Jesus Christ, but then all of a sudden you met other people that knew Jesus. And you had brothers and sisters. And it was amazing. And this is what happened to the man, Saul, who wanted to kill these people, yet now he came to enjoy their presence, to even love them. We have to put our minds in his mind or the disciples as this was happening. It was a profound situation. But the disciples and the people of God have always been this way, but we see it particularly in the book of Acts, even from the very beginning, when uh, in Acts 2.46, day by day, continually with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. There was this intimate fellowship among the people of God. And even today, we love to get together. We love to chat with each other. Maybe we're using text instead of going house to house because we're a bit more scattered. But we have our fellowship meal, even in our church, because we love the disciples. Because why? Christ is that is the magnetic force that power that draws us, that we are one in Christ. It is glorious that we have so many brothers and sisters, not only here, but around the world. And we are connected with them, and we love them, and we delight to be together because of Christ, because of what Jesus did for them and for us. And when we, I keep thinking of Paul's epistles that he would write later, yet from the perspective of being a brand new Christian, uh, Galatians 3.28, where he wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He may have felt unified with the Jews. He was definitely unified in his attack on Jesus Christ. But now he had not only union with Christ, but union with the people of Christ. And wherever we go in the world, you can go to Korea, you can go to India, Anywhere you find Christians, even when you can't communicate very well, you have a bond in Jesus Christ. And it's wonderful, and we should look for it, and we pray for it at our jobs in the community. It's great to meet just one Christian, to have at your job one brother or sister, that you just see them and you get uplifted. And how much more on the Lord's Day when we gather and we greet one another and we are uplifted. And I think Saul was exactly the same way. He immediately connected with the disciples. And you'll see that emphasis as we continue, Saul and the disciples, because he now was a disciple of Christ. Further, we could add, it's the mark of being a Christian, First John of 3.14, that if we say we're a Christian, but we're not connected with Christ's people, 
something's very wrong. So it's one of those distinguishing traits that if you are saved, you delight to be with other saved people that know Jesus. Well, he not only was meeting with these disciples, but verse 20, and immediately, he, he was a new believer, he began to proclaim Jesus. That's our title, Saul Proclaims Jesus, in the synagogues, plural, saying he is the Son of God. This man was one of a kind, in a sense, and he had been schooled under Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the traditions. Yet now he had met Jesus, and all that he was had been, he was transformed to a preacher. And he uh, said that he is, Jesus is the Son of God. He proclaimed, Keruso, at Kerusain, we pray for Keruso Bible Church in Pune, India, to uh, preach or proclaim. Well, that's what Saul was doing. He was already a preacher, a brand new Christian. He was proclaiming Jesus, maybe not in the formal sense that we might think of, but people would have opportunity in the synagogue, especially someone of his background, to stand up. But boy, when he opened his mouth, they must have been shocked, except for those disciples that that may have been there. We don't know all the details, but I would expect that the majority of the people in the synagogue were Jews. And here was, here was, this was their man, one of their heroes, and he was proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. I'm sure their mouths dropped open. They must have been amazed, and we'll hear more of that in a moment. But lesson two, in thinking of this uh, phrase, that he proclaimed Jesus, that he is the Son of God. And then we're going to see it in verse 22, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Lesson two, the identity of Jesus is indispensable for the gospel mission. The identity of Jesus is indispensable to the gospel message or the gospel mission. He's a brand new believer, but he had to know something, and he had to know that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's why Christology, what we believe about Jesus, is so important. That's why we need theology. And at the very beginning of his ministry, he had met Jesus, and it was revealed to him that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a non-negotiable. We have to get that, or we really can't go any further. And then 22, we'll see Jesus is the Christ. Because many people talk about Jesus, but which Jesus are they referring to? The Muslims in the Quran have uh, a Jesus that will even come again. And the Jehovah Witnesses will speak of Jesus, but they don't believe he's God. And the Mormons have a Jesus who could be the brother of the devil. So we have to make sure which Jesus are we talking about. Jesus is the Son of God, his deity. That must be embraced or we don't have true Christianity or true religion. So the identity of Jesus is indispensable to our or the gospel message. And again, the cults. This is one of the fundamental issues of why they're not brethren, because they don't have the same Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus according to the Bible. We cannot have a Jesus according to our own imagination. We must get his Identity, who is he from the scriptures? Stating the obvious, but we see it 
at the beginning of Paul's ministry. And then you can think of uh, Philippians and all the passages where he develops and has grown in his Christology. Yet it began here, Jesus is the Son of God. May God help us to explain and to teach that to others. Verse 21. All those hearing him continued to be amazed or astonished and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who caught on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? They were dumbfounded. How can this guy who denied that Jesus was the Son of God say that he is? They couldn't believe it. They were, they were just dumbstruck, dumbfounded. What was he saying? They didn't get it. They did not understand because he was a destroyer of the church. Now he was a disciple of the church. He had come down to Damascus to arrest people and he was arrested by Jesus himself and then preached Jesus himself. And think back to verse 1 again. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Yet now he was preaching Christ as Lord. Lesson 3. See God's stupendous power of divine reversal. See God's stupendous power in this divine reversal. We find that as we look in, in the Bible. We see it in life that God does uh, reveals these divine reversals. Everything in the world is according to God's decree. But sometimes it's particularly striking to us and the world even. They were dumbfounded. It was a stupendous event. They couldn't believe what had happened as even the disciples themselves couldn't believe it. And they wouldn't trust Saul because they knew who he was. Saul's plan was thwarted, but God's purpose stood firm. Proverbs 19.21, I love the theology of the Proverbs. Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will what? Stand. I love that. Many plans are in a man's heart. Saul had many plans to arrest, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, yet the counsel of the Lord stood fast, and we need to be amazed. And Paul, always, when he looked at his own conversion story, he was amazed himself. How could I be saved? How could God save me? And if if we understand the truth, we would say the same thing. How, How could it be, Lord, that you saved me, the most unlikely convert? It's a divine reversal, and we see it throughout Paul's ministry and in the epistles. He brings it up again and again that here I am, uh, a most unlikely convert. Verse 22 of Acts 9. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, verse 19 said he was took food and was strengthened, but I believe this is a different word and a different type of strengthening. He had fasted for three days, and therefore he needed food to get strength again. But this strengthening, I think the key is, he kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews 
by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He not only had been strengthened physically uh, by the food earlier, but he was now being strengthened spiritually and biblically according to the meeting with Christ and the the discipleship and the Bible study that he had and the meditation. And therefore, as he was getting stronger spiritually, he was uh, preaching to these Jews and they were confounded, or as we said, dumbfounded. He was surely going back over the law, the, the, the writings, the prophets. Yes, you know, Isaiah 53, I can see it now. It's Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Psalm 2. Yes, this is, this is Jesus, the Son. He is the Son of God and He was, things were connecting and He was, He was explaining that to the Jews and they were confounded. He was proving it to them. One author described it as a presentation with a logical conclusion. He was reasoning with the Jews and explaining to them that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, proving it to them. So what could we learn? We're not apostles. There are no apostles today. But lesson four, like Paul, we should seek to prove who Jesus is, but not trust in the proving. We should seek to prove who Jesus is, but not trust in the proving because we know that it's by the grace of God that people have an illuminated mind. Yet we use all that we can to explain, to persuade, to answer questions, to uh, confound and prove that Jesus is the Christ. We don't just sit back and say, well, I hope it works out. No, we use all that we have, and and some of us have more limited uh, vocabulary, uh, intelligence, um, uh, experiences, We don't know much, but we do know that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the Christ, and we can seek to explain Him to others. But we don't trust in the explanation. We trust in God. For we know that to the world, the preaching of the gospel is, what? Foolishness. But to the called, Christ will make Him, Christ Himself, to be the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's a good reminder that that uh, we don't believe that if we just explain it just so, they'll have to believe. Yet on the other hand, we should explain it and seek to prove and answer questions and reason with people and persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. Yet we don't trust in our own persuasion. Again, truths that we already believe, but a reminder of, yes, seek to explain carefully and, and profoundly logically, but don't trust in the method. It's interesting that even in uh, verse 20, where Saul was saying he is the Son of God, and here in verse 19, that he, that Jesus is the Christ, uh, it's the same phrases, the same Greek words, except uh, for Son of God and Christ, obviously they're different, but the, the other words are exactly the same. He has this method uh, of teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is the Christ. And I think even as we evangelize and tell others about our Lord, we can glean some points 
from Paul's brand new Christian experience. He's just a, a baby Christian, yet God had prepared him in such a way and had revealed himself. Jesus had revealed himself to Saul that he could, with power and clarity, convince others to believe in Jesus. Now, do you see anything uh, between verses 22 and 23? In your Bible, do you see any gaps or anything between 22 and 23? Well, but before you hit the many days, and maybe including the many days, there, I wish somehow we could have a note, maybe if you have a study Bible, or if you look in your column reference, you're going to see some verses referenced, and those are Galatians 1. Turn over to Galatians 1, verse 15. Galatians 1. Now, why are we going to Galatians? You'll see in a moment. Galatians 1, verse 15 through 17. Paul is recounting to the Galatian believers, but when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. So, uh, whether before these many days or including these many days, there's three years. And uh, it's difficult to get our heads around this the further we are from the New Testament and the history. But Paul went on this uh, trip, and we know almost nothing about it, but to Arabia, and I know John has mentioned uh, Nabatea to us in the past, which which stretches from Damascus to Gaza, of all places we're hearing much about in the news, and far into the eastern desert, and the capital uh, was actually Petra, uh, Petra, Jordan. You've seen the beautiful pictures. So it, it's a large area, especially into that desert heading east. And again, I encourage you to always have a look in your at your map in the back of your Bible. And if you don't have one, you can uh, real cheap buy some maps uh, online. But you can see uh, where Jerusalem, Damascus, and even in my Bible, the last map has Nabatea. So off into that eastern desert uh, is where Paul went uh, during or including these many days. Some think he went on a mission. Some think that he withdrew to meditate on all that he, he had happened to him. We don't know. Uh, maybe there's some hints here and there, but uh, maybe you can find something else. I couldn't find any information about it. I believe uh, Arabia is only mentioned one other time in the New Testament. So keep that in mind that we're reading these verses in Acts 9, and it seems like it's all within a few days, and even the way Luke records it, many days. He had a purpose in writing this way, but Paul would write to the Galatians and say that he went to the desert, to Arabia, 
for three years before he went up to Jerusalem, which we're going to hit in a moment here. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Verse 23, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. They couldn't bear his preaching any longer, his explanation that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ. They had to put him to death. They couldn't stand it. They plotted together. They were unified in their plot to kill the one who previously was killing Christians. Now they wanted to kill the man who was a Christian. Now Paul also gives us more information. I'll just read two verses from 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul described this situation a little further. He said, In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. So this uh, ethnarch uh, under the king of... of, uh, of um, the area was guarding the gates, as it says here, so that Saul would not only escape not only the the Jews that were after him, but this ethnarch as well. So he was there was unity against Saul, the preacher. Lesson five. And again, noting the words that they wanted to do away with him. They wanted to do away with him. They were plotting, and the verse concludes at 24, to put him to death. Has anyone ever plotted to put you to death? This is not a regular, everyday experience. We can read over these verses and not realize the seriousness. But lesson five, remember Jesus' words, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15:20 A slave is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you If we're following Jesus if we're a slave of the master we are liable to be persecuted and much of church history is the history of persecution Now I got it in the mail I told you that I was I had this book for decades and lost it somewhere and I reordered Operation World. It used to be Patrick Johnson, but now Jason Mandrike is the editor. It's a wonderful book, A to Z, every country in the world. Highly recommend it. And I went in last night and just looked up Pakistan. And you can find out specifics on persecution, how to pray for the persecuted church. So let's. we may not be persecuted in the way that Saul was, praise God, no one's plotting to put us to death. May it not happen, but it could, and it's happening to brothers and sisters. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've surely heard stories, maybe even new people that were in these situations, that their lives were threatened, they were put in jail, their children were kidnapped, their wives were kidnapped, they were fired, and and horrible things can happen. Because Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We need to be prepared, not surprised as we've been exhorted. 
but also to pray for the persecuted saints, our brothers and sisters. We must remember them, and that's a tool. You're welcome to have a look at it this afternoon. And even the Reformation. Talk about persecution. Martin Luther had to be hid in the Wartburg Castle because they were trying to kill him, and and many people were killed, and it was horrible. And, And throughout church history... Our brothers and sisters have been put to death because they preach Jesus as the Son of God and Jesus as the Christ. And often it's the religious elite that do it. Even other so-called Christians. Which is why it's good to remember the Reformation. What Rome did to the Protestants, uh, it's horrific. And not that Protestants have been innocent either. There's been much, much persecution, especially to Baptists, which we are. So Paul had went out to that desert for three years, had grown as a Christian. Now he, he's in this situation where they're plotting to kill him, to put him to death. But he was willing to follow Christ to death and suffer. As we read that list last week, the man was persecuted, stoned, whipped, you name it. Let's keep that in mind. And we're going to see it again and again through the book of Acts. The history of the church is the history of the persecution of the church. Verse 25. Because he had become a mature Christian and had been preaching, he had students, verse 25. But his disciples, so that lends weight to our, and helps us understand, it had been several years didn't just happen overnight, boom, he's got disciples. He was a brand new disciple, but he needed to grow, and now he was uh, surely winning, uh, had won others to Christ and was discipling them and teaching them. He had disciples, and they, they knew about this uh, threat, and they took him by night. Again, put yourself in a situation. They're sneaking away at night because the Jews are coming to get him. They took him away by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Was he a big man? I don't know. But they lowered him down in a basket. It's incredible. These were his fellow disciples, the brethren. They loved him and wanted to help him to escape. Lesson six. Faith in God and fleeing persecution are not at odds. If someone is going to kill you because you're a Christian, you don't just have to stand there and put your neck down. You can flee. And often we see that in the New Testament, and we see it at the very beginning of the church with the persecution of Saul of Tarsus trying to kill people, and the church was scattered. They fled to save their lives. So you can have faith and flee God. That's not at odds. You can pray and run or pray and die. If you don't run, and and there are times where you can't run or for some situations, uh, people have chosen to die, but pray and run or pray and die. It's not at odds to have faith and to flee persecution. And may God give wisdom to those in that situation or maybe one day even ourselves. So he was let down through that basket. And then verse 26, he's, he's arriving. Uh, it's 150 miles away. You know, surely... Uh, a two-week trek, at least, on donkeys or 
however they got there, 150 miles back to Jerusalem, he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid, not believing that he was a disciple. And we understand, they knew what he was, but again, three years had passed, approximately. So they were trying to, what is going on? Surely rumors were flying all over the place. What was the true information? They didn't know, and they didn't want to be put to death. They weren't sure. They were afraid because that's where the persecution began at Jerusalem. Now the previous chief persecutors back saying, yes, I'm a disciple. But they didn't trust him. It says they were all afraid. The majority, they were afraid of him that he might be a trickster. But verse 27, and I've been thinking about this through the, through the week here, these first two words are precious. But Barnabas, but Barnabas, he took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. What a gracious, loving, kind, wise man. Courageous for sure because he wasn't worried necessarily that he had been put, he would, he would be persecuted, but he, he knew the information. He heard the facts, so he relayed those to the apostle that Saul had talked to Jesus, had seen Jesus, had spoken out boldly in Jesus' name, and so he reported this to the apostles. And of course, this Barnabas would be, would become a co-laborer with Paul for many years, and we We'll, we'll cover all of those cases all the way through chapter 15 when, unfortunately, they had a disagreement over John Mark and they parted ways. But for years, these two would have great ministry opportunities together. But it all began when everybody was afraid of Saul, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and explained the situation. Now remember, uh, we, we were introduced to Barnabas already in Acts 4.36, and his name was actually Joseph. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, he was from Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which means what? Son of, do you know? Son of encouragement. I find it here that he is a son of encouragement, uh, that's Barnabas who helped the Apostle Paul. Lesson 7, learning by illustration. We have many illustrations of what to do and what not to do in this descriptive book, but Lesson 7, don't underestimate how the Lord may use our acts of love in the lives of other believers. Don't underestimate. We already saw it in Ananias, who also was afraid to come to help Saul, yet he came, and again, we... He's not someone that we think of, maybe Hebrews 11, the heroes. But yes, he was one of the people that God used in a significant, in a signature way to reach Saul of Tarsus. And then now we have this Barnabas uh, entering and continuing on the scene to encourage all of the apostles by bringing this brand new apostle who had spent time with Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and maybe 
also in that time in Arabia. Surely uh, he was growing in that time, and Barnabas made the case to the apostles, and Saul was welcomed as an apostle. And that will be, uh, you can think of the epistles, and that needed to happen for Saul to be recognized as an apostle. So don't underestimate how the Lord may use your acts of love in the lives of other believers. And if you think back to your own conversion, who were the people? Who were the, the people? We mentioned this when we, when we looked at Ananias, but there are people, and actually I thought of on the way here, Jeff Nash, who went to be with the Lord a week ago, who used to attend our church. A wonderful man. He encouraged me at a particular time in my life. He, he gave words of encouragement, just a few words that, that stick with me till today. And he was an encouragement like Barnabas. May we be sons and daughters of encouragement. doesn't take much. A few words, a helping hand. The Lord can use us greatly to build up and to help other believers to, to go forward. So let's seize the moment and, and be willing servants like Ananias, like Barnabas, to help other Christians. And we've been helped, so let us help others. It's profound, and the history of Christianity is the work of Christ through people. We're not lone rangers. We're not left out on islands. We are the body, the church, universal, and particularly the local church. We have opportunities that are profound, not just on Sundays, of course, but all through the week, all through our lives, and other Christians outside of our local church. Let us not underestimate just a few words can, can change someone's life, can encourage them for years to come. On, on, the, on the converse, you do the wrong thing, you can also hurt Christians, but we're looking at the positive side, which Barnabas was that true son of encouragement. Let us act graciously toward the saints. Verse 28. So Saul, he was with them, the apostles and and the disciples at Jerusalem, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. So he was had, had preached at Damascus, then he was in the desert, now he's back in Jerusalem, he's with the apostles and the disciples. Now, we, we read Galatians 1, it says he stayed with Peter, and James, the Lord's brother, 15 days. So he spent two weeks with uh, Peter and James, the Lord's brother, at least. Excuse me. And while he was there, he was continuing to grow and to fellowship, and he was speaking out boldly. And I love this <coughs> Greek word, uh, one of the few that I remember, parousia. He was speaking out with this Boldness, this unreservedness of speech, which we see the same word in, in Hebrews 4, that we would come boldly to the throne of grace, to have that freedom of speech. Well, Paul had it in his preaching, and others did too, and, and even we can have it to speak out boldly in Jesus' name, to speak in the name of the Lord with his authority, and, and consistent, speak things that are consistent with the character of our Lord, the truth of the Lord, as well. Verse 27 says the same thing, a different form of the word, that he also spoke out boldly. So lesson eight, simply, 
Pray that we would have spirit-enabled boldness to preach. Pray for the elders. We can all evangelize, but preaching and teaching needs this spirit-enabled boldness, this powerful speech that is convicting, that is persuasive, that is bringing people to conclusion and clearly enunciating the gospel of Christ, that Christ is the Son of God, that Christ is the Messiah, and even the whole counsel of God. But we need the Spirit of God to enable us to preach the Word. I was in Toastmasters. I never asked my fellow Toastmasters, hey, hey, pray that I would have boldness to, to give my speech today. No, there is public speaking and there's preaching. And to preach the Word, and Paul told uh, people several times, pray for us that we would have this boldness. And so when Tom comes up to preach Hebrews 11 each week, or, or John is teaching or preaching, we pray for us that we would have boldness that comes from the Spirit of God, this unhindered speech. We need it. We need God's help to speak in such a way. That's just one description of how we want to speak. There are others as well. But because it's highlighted here that he, that Saul was speaking out boldly, he spoke out boldly. And by the way, this is through at, throughout the book of Acts, even to the last verse in Acts 28.31, which is a great picture of what I'm trying to request. In Acts 28.31, it, it describes um, describes Paul saying that they were preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. That word openness is the parousia again. So pray for us that we would have boldness to preach and to have that spirit-filled verbiage and that it would not just be mere talks, but actually the truth of God proclaimed. Preach the word. That's what we desire to do. Verse 29. And he, Saul, was talking and arguing. Did you know arguing was in the Bible? He was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Again, he was reasoning. He was explaining. He was trying to get them to believe that Jesus was the Christ, even arguing with them. It's descriptive, I trust, in a godly way, not losing his temper as we might but with boldness, trying to get them to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. These Hellenistic Jews may have and and most likely adopted the Greek language and much of the Greek culture. Now remember, Paul, being from Tarsus, he had a lot of that influence as well and surely spoke Greek. So he knew something about where they were coming from. He was particularly suited to do this. But I note the contrast here. He was talking and arguing, but they wanted to kill him. They were willing to kill to get someone to submit to their way. That's not what Saul did. That's not what we do. Not with swords, loud clashings. No. We preach the Word. We preach Christ. We're not uh, crusaders. 
That's horrible. That's what these Hellenistic Jews and the other Jews that were unconverted, just like Saul was, they wanted to silence the Christians at any cost, including putting them to death. See the contrast in the method of how we're trying to reason and preach and explain and talk to people, yet they were trying to kill. You can also read uh, Acts 22:17 through 21 to get more information about uh, this case. So then verse 30, we're, we're nearly finished. But when the brethren learned of it, that is the plotting, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. The brethren, again, these disciples who grew to love Saul, rescued him by taking him to Caesarea, the port city. Again, look at your map, you can see it. It's a port city where he would most likely get the boat all the way up to Tarsus. Caesarea was about 70 miles from Jerusalem, so another week's traveling to get to the port. But then Tarsus, just by straight line distance, was three to 400 miles north. So that's a long uh, boat trip. But they had to rescue their brother. And again, someone could have said, you don't have faith, just stay there. Just stay there and preach. Don't worry about it, God will protect you. No, he fled. They had faith and they fled. That's not contradictory. Ironically, he goes to Tarsus the place where he had grown up, the place where his family was known. Uh, Were they still there? We we don't have that information, but you can think about it, at least providentially, he went back to the place where he grew up. Um, Let me just read the Acts 22, 17, 17 and 18. Paul was saying that it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him, that is Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And from my assessment, this was the same case. So he knew about their plotting because Jesus had told him again what was going to happen. So he he flees to Tarsus, and that ends the episode. But there's a summary verse here in Acts 9, verse 31, which is beautiful. I think we've read it at our annual general meeting more than once. Uh, May it be a summary of, of Pilgrim Bible and even the church in America, the church in the world. Verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. The church, the church universal in in these areas, it wasn't just one local church, it was the church, all of God's people throughout these regions, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, they, they enjoyed these things. But before we get there, Again, just go back to 8, 1, um, 8, verse 1, where that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and everyone was scattered uh, 
in the regions throughout Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So we saw with the persecution of Saul, this, this, the, the church was scattered in all of these areas. Now, some year, a few years later, the church is prospering. The church is going on and, and thinking about this contrast between intense persecution but now an intensified peace we could learn in the last place church history is full of ups and downs church history that is the church through all the ages is full of ups and downs and even our local church ups if you've been here for five years 10 years 20 years there's ups and there's downs it's normal you study church history sometimes it's way up and sometimes it's way down we pray for revival we pray for reformation but the Lord sometimes bring those low times, those intense persecutions where many believers were killed. It was horrible. By the hundreds, by the thousands, it has happened and can happen. Yet on the flip side, there can be these times that are, I'll say, up, that, that more of the, the peaks, if you will. But five of those peaks or five of those good things are described. They enjoyed peace. Why? Who was gone from the scene? Saul. Saul, he was no longer Saul of Tarsus, he was Saul the Christian. Because he stopped persecuting, it seems that he was the the main guy doing a lot. There was peace. They enjoyed peace. Second, they were being built up it has the word for house here. It's a construction zone. You know, you drive driving down the road, and they've got cones up, and there's the lanes change and go slower. It's a construction zone. Well, that's something that's always going on in the church. But we trust that we're not being broke down, but we're being built up, built on Christ, going up in maturity, in sanctification. Third, they were going forward, going on in the fear of the Lord. They knew Christ, they feared Christ, they esteemed Christ, they loved Christ, and they kept going forward. And thinking of Martin Luther in his catechism, Luther's catechism, a lot of good stuff in there. When he deals with the Ten Commandments, he he asks the question to the children, and if you read it, you think, wow, kids would get this, but it's it's good stuff. How How do you keep this commandment by loving and fearing God. And so, again, these believers were loving and fearing the Lord Jesus and going forward. They were in that upward momentum of growth. Fourth, they were not only fearing the Lord, they were comforted by the Holy Spirit. They were comforted. And the word here is paraklese, paraclete. The Spirit is the comforter, and they were being comforted by the Spirit of God. They had went through intense persecution, surely many tears as Stephen was murdered and many others were being dragged away, men and women, but now there was a break. There was peace. There was calm. And they were in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. May we know that comfort. And finally, they continued to increase. The church was expanding. Even though it had been persecuted, it was spreading across the Mediterranean and gaining great momentum, which was glorious. And, and it, it has continued to expand around the globe till this day. But again, 
church history is full of ups and downs. And if we think otherwise, we're going to be really disappointed. We have to know that. The Christian life itself is full of ups and downs, but church life and even the um, universal church goes through ups and downs. We must acknowledge that and see it right here in the beginning of Acts. We see the church going up with success and going down with persecution and even heresies had entered in and difficulties and great struggles. Yet in this case, they were being built up. Now, next time we're going to go all the way to Acts 11 and there's an eight-year gap. We're not going to hear anything about Saul for eight more years. Three years have passed, eight more years, so he'll have been a Christian 11 years by the time we seeing him and who goes to look for him in Tarsus? Barnabas. So it's a long time until the next study. Uh, eight years until our next study. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Acts. That is a great blessing, Lord, more than I imagined. Um, Thank you, Lord, for your grace in saving Saul and saving us and for giving him and us this bond with other disciples of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that. And may we, even today, 2,000 years later, exhibit that we are those that believe in Jesus and that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Father, may we also be clear on who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Messiah, and all that the Bible reveals about him. May we embrace it, and we praise you for your work in his life and how you grew him and how he preached boldly. May we explain and and preach boldly here and elsewhere. Use us, Father, to communicate the truth to others uh, with clarity, with a convincing evidence and proof from the Bible with humility, all that we need. Help us to do that, Lord. And we thank you for your work in building your church from the very beginning in Acts until now. Your work marches forward, not with swords and bombs and tanks, but by the power of Christ, by the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that is proclaimed. How shall they hear without a preacher? Lord, may there be preachers and may the church go forward Lord, in, in all these beautiful descriptions that, that we would be comforted by your spirit, that we would fear you and love you, that we would know your peace and even growth comes from you. We lay our church before you. We pray for the persecuted saints around the world that you would give them wisdom. It seems most of them should clearly flee, help them to get away. And may we be alert to that and maybe even help. Father, protect us from that plotting that has happened to many other Christians. Lord, may it not happen here, but if it does, may you give us the grace to stand firm for Christ. We thank you for this time. Be with us as we worship you in the hour to come. In Jesus' name, amen.